Our liberties we prize. Our rights we will maintain. We know that's what we say. But is that what we do? Oh. Hey everyone! Today's podcast is on broadcast media's influence over the changing politics of Iowa. It's in two parts. The first part features three knowledgeable, longtime observers of broadcast media. We hear from a concerned citizen, a former member of the U.S. Federal Communications Commission, and a former owner of radio stations in Iowa. The second part is a discussion with the Emmy Award-winning broadcast journalist Ted Koppel. He shares his concerns for the future of journalism in an approaching era dominated by artificial intelligence. We urge you to listen to both as they bring diverse perspectives to the question of what the hell is happening to Iowa. What did happen to media in Iowa? It sure is different than back in my day. I heard a word used to describe what's going on in talk radio not long ago, and it's so apt. Angertainment. Absolutely. And, Reka, that kind of rhetoric can be found every day on talk radio in Iowa. On the front line of truth. Iowa's live news center. News Radio 1040 WHO. Political violence in a mob setting is, is always January 6th. For Democrats, that's just like Tuesday. Pushing the craziest stuff over COVID. The ventilator craze. Remember we needed a million of them? Ventilators killed people in numbers that are staggering when you look at it. I mean, No one apologizes on the left for being wrong anymore because being right isn't the point. Media is a business. In order to survive, in order to make a profit, you have to be able to sell advertisements to businesses in order to for those businesses to reach consumers, you have to have a lot of eyeballs or ears listening to the content. And the more you can make somebody angry, the more those ratings skyrocket. Besides just the anger factor, what is it that's propelling the political rhetoric to be so far to the right? Our first guest today wrote us a letter after hearing our initial podcast, and she's an Iowa blogger who's been monitoring broadcast media's shift to the far right here in Iowa. We really appreciate our readers and listeners for their participation in this process. Here's our first speaker, Trish Nelson. Trish, so where are you coming to us from? Iowa City. My professional life was as a clinical social worker for 20, 25 years. So just, I got interested in media pretty much during the Howard Dean campaign. He had media reform as one of his platforms for the campaign. And that got me interested in in looking at that. And then about that time, Air America Radio was starting to come on. Sinclair Broadcasting was starting to do a lot of evil things. I don't know if you guys remember the Stolen Honor movie during the Kerry campaign, what they did to try to malign John Kerry's military service, that movie, Mm -hmm. and it was going to be aired on all the Sinclair broadcasting stations. And I thought to myself, I'm so glad we don't have a Sinclair broadcasting station in our community. (laughs) Famous last words, right? (laughs) Yeah. And that's what I found out that we did, in fact, have one. There was a program on the local stations brought by Sinclair Broadcasting called The Point. And it was just a one minute thing on the nightly local stations where it was actually a Sinclair CEO came on and gave this conservative sort of one minute message. They made him look like he was a journalist without really saying it, but he was actually a CEO. Mm. And what happened was there was a local blogger, his name was Ted, and he was also an English faculty member of university, started a blog called The Counterpoint that daily refuted Mark Hyman's conservative lies getting broadcast on Sinclair. And it was very clever and really a great little blog. And Sinclair got wind of it. And they targeted Ted on one of their programs. 
saying that he plagiarized his course curricula. The university sued Sinclair over it. Wow. <laughs> and when was I that? think they won. Like they won a settlement or something, but probably and, destroyed Ted's life in the meantime. Yeah, you'd have to defend something like that. So then we don't really know why, but eventually Mark Hyman did they did take him off the air. But in the course of that, we filed a petition to deny licensure of KGAN. We got to know Nick during that. Because <laughs> as an FCC commissioner, he could help us. Trish is referring to Nicholas Johnson, the former Federal Communications Commissioner. He helped us a lot with what we could say they were doing. And so this was like a year-long project and it involved recruiting volunteers and groups of us went to KGAN studio and copied their entire public file. It was just filled with hundreds of comments from listeners, complaints about the station, everything from poor reception, poor lack of children's programming, comments on Mark Hyman's the point, you know, that we, who is this guy? He's crazy. Why is he on there? <laughs> we got copies of all of that and we included that in our petition to the FCC. In the course of that, we also had a town hall meeting in Iowa City. We had 500 people there. Commissioner Adelstein was there. John Nichols was there. It was town hall where people got to take the microphone and talk about the media and their problems with the media. One of our group members was on the faculty and he was a researcher. And so he set up a study where we would watch their programming and just collect data. And then we included that in the petition. And we didn't get a response. Nothing <laughs> didn't get addressed in the Republican administration. We did get a response, but it was basically that none of our claims had merit. Uh. So that was very sad, <laughs> but we expected it. Nick prepared us for that, that, you know, it used to be there was a public interest standard and there really isn't anymore, but we were glad we did it. It's one of the, one of the best things I feel like I've done. Under the heading, what the hell happened to Iowa? What do you think has happened to radio in Iowa? And can you outline in our conversation here what you put in your email to us? When we started working on TV, I started getting curious about radio because one of the things that we discovered was that a KXIC, our local station in Iowa City, had six hours a day of Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity. In Iowa City, we've got this six hours a day of conservative idiots. And so we did a petition. We got 500 people to sign a petition and we sent it to KXIC and we said, Basically, we don't really need to do this, and we want you to add some progressive programming to, to balance it or something like that. Yeah. And so they did. They got rid of their two programs, and they added, maybe it was Randy Rhodes and Tom Hartman, two progressive talkers. But they, they only lasted, in my memory, it was just a few weeks. It wasn't long. Those programs disappeared. But they didn't put the conservative talk back on. I think they went to sports. So that was Okay. So that but, was a response um, to your petition? Yeah, but the local manager disappeared after that. Again, we don't get the whole story, but we can only think that it had something to do with that. And then I think that happened at a, for a Davenport station as well. Everything just became conservative talk. I just have your email in front of me, and you go through the radio stations in Iowa, which I'd love to have you do, and the number of hours... Because I think that's pretty um, chilling. When so it is. it's harder to get the information now because then everybody, all the the hosts were household names. Bill O'Reilly, Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, mm. Michael Savage. One of them was 24 hours a day. I wow. think the Estherville station might now be 24 hours a day. And they would even broadcast best ofs on the weekends. There are not too many antidotes. Bit. On the other side, on the left side, there's public radio, but that's not even left. It's just honest mm -hmm. <laughs> reporting. Educational, supposedly. They funded public radio. The right. legislature mm -hmm. has taken away funding for public radio. The Iowa legislature has? Yes. This time around? 
when yeah, I was well, in India, they graduated. Did. It's been graduated in, but as of now, they are without state funding after a hundred years of broadcasting and state funded. It's horrible. Yeah. So Trish, back to yeah. your list. Can you go through and are, when you did your study, was there any progressive radio anywhere in Iowa on commercial stations? There was there was a station in Ottumwa that had you guys remember Alan Combs? He used to be on Fox as the kind of Oh yeah, he was really guy. weak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was terrible. Ed Fallon was on the air for a while. Mm-hmm. Now, but then they had to go to internet. And I'm not sure if Radio Bradshaw was actually on the air, but he had an internet program. And then there was there was a some progressive talkers, one or two hosts, I think, on a Davenport station. There's virtually none. Not and today. that's how it is nationwide. That's not just Iowa. There's virtually no over-the-air progressive radio. But for example, the top of the list is KCPS and KBUR in Burlington, two, two local radio stations, both just filled with conservative talk. KCPS has 12 hours a day, conservative talk, and KBUR has six hours a day. And I think one of those programs is a duplicate it's on both stations. A lot of stations replaced Rush with Rush reruns. And KXEL, KXEL in Waterloo, Cedar Falls, 12 hours a day. WOC in the Quad Cities, 11, 11 and a half hours a day. WHO Des Moines reaches the whole state and beyond the whole state. If, even if we just had WHO, that mm. would be enough. I would think that would be enough for a state to have and still satisfy those listeners. It seems like the Des Moines audience doesn't really recognize WHO as right-wing talk. They just think it's normal. I don't, and maybe that's just true everywhere, but KSJC Sioux City, 13 hours a day. WMT in Cedar Rapids, eight hours a day. I think that's up from six the first time I looked. WDBQ in Dubuque, six hours a day of conservative talk. Esterville, 15 hours a day at one time, or maybe currently it's 24. Some, somewhere that changed. KGLA, KGLO in Mason City, nine hours. KFJB Marshalltown, six hours a day. KSA, KASI in Ames, six hours a day. And KICD and Spencer, five to six hours a day of conservative talk. And it's just how much conservative talk does one state need over the publicly owned airwaves. I'm just curious about those parts of the state that have been consistently read, like Northwest Iowa. Have you noticed a difference since Sinclair started buying up most of the airwaves in places like that or in the voting patterns or attitudes of people towards politics? Yeah. Is that quantifiable? I haven't really tried to look at that. That side of the state has always been a little more conservative than Eastern Iowa, but... Or even has Eastern Iowa grown more conservative in your view? What I notice the most is general commentary online and in person of things that people believe. You can't believe that they think this. And you know that they're not making that up or you know that's coming from the propaganda because there's no other way that people can get the ideas that they get um barack obama wasn't was born in kenya and just just crazy stuff that's provably not true <laughs> and that machine started up in earnest when he yes. was running for office and then trump came along i think and trump started it yeah oh. even though it had been demonstrably proven he kept saying it yeah that's the thing that's just absolutely mind-blowing blow- is how they're, they've been proven wrong and they keep going out and saying it over yeah. the big they, lie. They, they, they don't listen to facts and don't seem to live in a factual world and continually vote against their interests. We know that propaganda works and that's the situation that we have in Iowa. And But is there any mitigating effect coming from local newspapers? That's a good question. I just don't think it has the reach or the emotional impact on people that listening to the radio, an angry person yelling about how bad Democrats are and how they're going to ruin your life and how they're going to ruin the country. And this was laid out in the 
documentary Brainwashing of My Dad, how they purposefully use language and present it in a certain way to activate the part of the brain that is responsible for fear. It's just a personal tale, but she decides to research it and she went around and talked to media experts and found out about how Republicans use language to persuade people in order to win elections. And it's just a fascinating documentary, both historical, how they did that, and also the personal story of her family and her dad. And so it had a happy ending in a way, because the way that they solved it was her dad eventually retired and wasn't driving to work anymore. One of the things that conservative media does is say, don't trust anybody else, just trust us. Why do you think it is that progressives have been less successful on talk radio at really presenting the other side and finding the holes in the arguments that are being put forward by the right? Yeah. Is it because of ownership, media ownership? Now, of course, it would be. But back in the day, even, there just never was that much progressive talk radio. It might not have just been needed. I I don't know. Because the conservatives did this on purpose. They, Uh They did it as a strategy. And so I just think that it's hard. They, when they started it, a lot of the stations and stuff, they didn't make money for years. They had a lot of money accessible to them. Mm. And Rush Limbaugh wasn't popular for years. They poured money into it and they invested in it and they waited and waited until they built that audience. They didn't always have an audience right from the start. Fox News didn't either. And I don't think that on our side, we have that kind of money that we can just, why aren't we buying some media it's interesting. If you look at the United States Senate, there there are 100 members of the United States Senate. No matter whether you're in Montana or Iowa with relatively small populations or large metropolitan states. So to come into an, a small state and buy the media, it's a lot more cost effective to, to own a Senate seat in a small state. So if you target smaller Mm. states and smaller audiences, that sort of thing, you can control the United States Senate with not a lot of money. Our brains just don't work that way. We're not evil and greedy. (laughs) (laughs) You kind of have to be to think that a lot of that is because of the propaganda that uh, to me, it really has turned people's brains to mush. Yeah. I mean, it's also access to so much misinformation online. We were in Newton the other day and chatting with a couple women at the counter of a maid right. And we're just making conversation. And we brought up the voucher issue. And one of the women said, at least in the private schools, they're going to be held more accountable. And Rake and I just felt, no, there is no accountability in the private schools. I know. That's getting a free handout. But how... Everything is opposite. It was depressing. I I agree. It can't just stand how it is. You just can't have that much misinformation out there and govern and and have things turn out okay. Before we leave this subject, I just wanted to ask this. So the same rules apply to radio station ownership across the country, right? It feels to me as if I was what I know right now is particularly susceptible to it. I'm just curious if you think that this problem of concentration of right wing talk radio has especially affected Iowa in some ways or it's having an equal impact everywhere because not every blue state has turned red. But Iowa really went red in this last election. Are we more susceptible? That is a really good question. But my one of the thoughts that I had on this was that we, what's the population of Iowa? Three million? Yeah. And yet we have 15 radio stations, all, mm-hmm. you know, that broadcast in all corners of the state that were saturated in it. Wow. Maybe some states don't have as much. I don't really, I don't yeah. know. Great content. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for 
everything you're doing. Thanks for being interested in the radio thing. I just think people can't imagine that would be so influential. But it is. And what do you do about it? Next, Rake and I visit with former Federal Communications Commissioner Nicholas Johnson, who now lives in Iowa City. Now, I've started to ask myself really esoteric questions like, what is an Iowan? Ain't what they used to be, I tell you. Let's talk to you specifically about media in Iowa and what you think happened to Iowa radio. There was an organized effort to take over the country in general. And we now see the playbook open for all to read in terms of what the governor's been doing. Mm. It's the authoritarian's playbook. Right. You want to have an executive government, not a legislature. You want to control the books in the libraries. You want to control what the schools teach. You want to arrange it so everybody who's working for the state owes their job to you and they have no tenure and you can fire them at any time. So you really control it. The same kind of thing that the fella in Turkey's been doing or that Putin's been doing all along and uh, Mussolini and the U.S. candidate looks like Mussolini and has learned well from him. And the first thing you have to do is take over the media. And it's often the case that when a war breaks out, where the troops first go to the local TV station to take it over. And so they realized they had to do something. And with regard to the media, the radio was what they saw as a possibility. Tell us about the Fairness Doctrine and what led up to the elimination of it. Radio was recognized back in the 20s around the world. They saw the potential power that this was going to have. And I quote a congressman from Texas at the time the Radio Act was coming into being, who said, if we should ever let such a powerful medium fall into the hands of the few, then woe be to those who would dare to disagree with them. They understood that in in the same way that that Putin does today and wanted to prevent it. They saw radio, particularly the BBC, which became the model. This is a powerful social instrument for education, for bringing people together, for engaging them in public policy and whatever. Even Herbert Hoover, I was president, but at that time, Secretary of Commerce said we must never allow such an opportunity for good to be drowned in advertising chatter. And even the commercial broadcasters at that time were willing to go that way. Now, obviously, it flipped later on, but there was a notion that This was an important uh, public service that they were providing. And whereas most countries made broadcasting public entity, not government-owned, but not commercially-owned, we came up with the American solution of letting private individuals run the radio, as was all we had then, but for limited license terms. Nobody would own the right to broadcast. They could own a studio, but it wouldn't be worth anything without a license. And in order to get a license, you had to show how you were going to, quote, serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity, unquote. We held back the cost of local telephone because we wanted to bring people together. We wanted to build a nation. Radio was to serve a major role in doing that. So as that loosened, as commercial interests took over, 
And the right-wingers, whether or not they were Republicans, saw this as an opportunity to preach their gospel, just as the ministers were preaching theirs. They began to put pressure on the FCC to do away with the Fairness Doctrine, to do away with this responsibility to serve the community. When I was on the commission, we required them to go out and serve in their community. And, and they had to put on programs that serve the local community. The one provision of the Fairness Doctrine that many people overlook is that they were required to program about controversial issues of public importance. They had to do that. That was a part of the requirement if you were going to be a broadcaster. Then the other provision, the one that is known, is misunderstood as requiring equal time or requiring anybody who objected to getting on. No, I didn't require that. There was no reason to uh, for the broadcasters to protest it, and many of them didn't, particularly the journalists, because you're going to do news, you're going to look for controversial issues, and you're going to look for conflicting viewpoints on it. That's the way you sell newspapers, and that's the way you build an audience for radio. But they convinced the FC and the Congress and ultimately the Supreme Court that the fairness doctrine was not required and was actually doing harm, and it should be done away with. Now, the other element that went along with that was we had strict restrictions on the number of stations anybody could own or how close together those stations could be or whether you could own newspapers and stations mm -hmm. because a major part of what we were trying to do was to create opportunity for diversity of voices in a democracy. Mm -hmm. And as the Texas congressman said in the 1920s, we didn't want this power to fall into the hands of the few. The other thing that they overturned besides the Fairness Doctrine was our limitation on ownership. And so suddenly, instead of being able to have whatever it was, five or seven AM stations and FM stations. One, one licensee picked up the licenses for 2,000 stations. Wow. When did that happen? It was all around the same time. What year? What years? I think the Fairness Doctor was repealed in 87, but it's, we're talking about around that time. Okay. It's when the membership of the FCC changed and the politics changed in the Congress and the Senate and the White House, and everything was lost all at once. How many mega conglomerates are there now that are owning most of the radio stations around the country? There's Sinclair Broadcasting. There's what the what's the name of this other group? Oh, iHeartRadio. iHeartRadio. There are very, literally very few, right, that own the vast majority. Well, very few that own all the media. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. few yeah, movie studios. Very right. few. Yeah. True. And newspapers has been cut in half. Right. Yeah. But why, I'm curious as to why the right has gravitated towards radio in particular. Because that's the way they reach their, reach their base. Base that can be relatively easily manipulated. Mm -hmm. So that's what they knew they could put this stuff out on radio. And in these 80% of the counties that are now overwhelmingly Republican, on small town stations and provide them for free, Rush Limbaugh, what a deal. Yeah. This guy who's so popular, he can be on your local radio station. Nick, do you think that the proliferation of podcasts and new media and that sort of, you know, it used to be you had to go through the hoops to buy a license to run a radio station, but now anybody, and even a couple of liberally loving moms here, Start a podcast. Liberty loving moms, right? <laughs> That's us. Yeah. That's us. But is that going to penetrate this dominance of right wing talk radio on AM stations? As Richard Nixon 
I had a conversation about how if he really wanted to leave a legacy that he should really support financially public broadcasting. And he explained, I understand. He said, I know I can go on the smallest radio station in Mississippi and I can reach more people by talking on that radio station than I could reach if I could fill the Kennedy Stadium in Washington. Back to the original question and the title of the podcast, What the Hell Happened to Iowa? From your perch, watching media closely, more closely than most, what do you think is the reason Iowa has gone so far? Obviously, media has a lot to do with it, and newspapers as well. I used to deliver the Des Moines Register back in the day when it correctly said on its page one, the newspaper all Iowa depends upon. There were trucks carrying that paper all over the state. You go into any little cafe in a small town and there was a copy of the register on the counter. And won more Pulitzer Prizes than any newspaper in the United States except for the New York Times. You know how to compare it with what we got today. Uh, that makes a difference. That makes a difference. People read that paper. They read the editorials. We at Iowa at one time had the single most liberal delegation in Washington of any state. But anyhow, we had that. We had the second or third ranked best school system in the United States. We had a Republican governor who would invite immigrants from Vietnam to come live in Iowa. Yeah. I mean, that, that was Iowa. Uh, I think when we had the, this standards that you are a community service, and initially those licenses were only issued for six months. Oh, really? When, when I was on the commission, it was three years. But they knew that we were watching, and the lawyer, their lawyers would tell them, look, they're probably not going to come after you. But if they do, you're out of business. Tell us about the current FCC. What could they be doing? What should they be doing? They're living with reality. There just isn't the support of it. Bear in mind, they are not technically a part of the executive branch, these independent administrative regulatory agencies. They report to the Congress. They report to the committee that has oversight of the FCC, and they report to the committee that approves the budget for the FCC. And as I used to say, even when the FCC stirs as if in a fit of wakefulness, the Congress will then crack down on them and stop them from doing it. But today, I don't think there's much difference between the two. What is it about Iowa that makes Iowans particularly susceptible? Why are we seeing Iowa go so red, but not Maryland? I do think a lot turns on the governor. I think the levels of education make a difference. I think the amount of social interaction makes a difference. I think there's a difference between people who live in cities and people who live in small rural communities. Yep. A lot of these 80% of our 3,500 counties that are predominantly Republican are made up of small towns, ranchers, farmers, where they're proportionately fewer with college educations than there are in California and New York. So I think that's part of, part of it is tradition, the tradition we had back in the day when we had the most liberal delegation and mm -hmm. we had the Des Moines Register owned by people who cared. So I, the newspapers, make a difference. Let me clarify on the Fairness Doctrine, since that was what this was to be about, because I want to make, make clear just some basic facts that the Fairness Doctrine is not equal time. The Fairness Doctrine does not require that if somebody goes on and, and attacks the environmentalists, you have to hire, you have to bring back a vi environmentalist to answer them. It doesn't require that you put on any particular controversial issue. All these things are up to the broadcaster. 
The broadcast can decide what the controversial issue is they want to do. They can decide who they want to have presented. It can be a guest. It can be somebody on their staff in the form of an editorial or something. When they do bring them in, they don't have to give them equal time. It is not much of a restriction beyond what a professional journalist would want to do anyway. There is an equal opportunity doctrine. If they put on a candidate for free to use up some time, they have to give the same time to all other candidates. That's equal opportunity. But no longer. Yeah. I don't know what its status is. Probably it's gone. And there was a personal attack doctrine. If somebody was attacked, then that person had earned the right to come on that station and respond to that attack. The station is not there to be an unrelieved instrument of propaganda for the position of the owner. Mm -hmm. It's there to serve the public and represent all the public and bring in a range of points of view. Thanks so much, Nick Johnson. We really appreciate your perspective. Coming up next, we have a businessman who actually owned radio stations in the state of Iowa, Tom Stoner. Our final guest today is veteran broadcaster Ted Koppel. You will recognize his voice, and you will certainly be fascinated by his take not only on what's happened to journalism, but his fears for the future. Tom Stoner, it is delightful to have you on our podcast today, and I couldn't be more grateful to have your wit and wisdom as a part of this discussion under the title, What the Hell Happened to Iowa? (laughs) And I know even though you don't live in the state, there was a time when you were extremely active, you ran for political office, you ran the state Republican Party. You owned several broadcast companies, sold them, as I recall, for about 70 million bucks back in the day when 70 million bucks was a lot of money. And I'm so glad that you're willing to talk to us today about what happened to broadcasting in, let's take Iowa specifically. You own several stations. Why don't you tell me what those are? I don't know if the call letters are the same today as they were, first of all. It's an honor to be on your show, and it's always nice to see you. And uh, let's hope some wit and wisdom comes out of this for your listeners. I'm not sure the call letters are the same today as they were when we bought the stations. Uh, we own two stations, Kayhawk, as it was called, in, in Cedar Rapids. It's now owned by a woman by the name of Mary Quas, who's absolutely fabulous. And then we owned a st- station, KSO, in Des Moines. And KSO was the first, we ended up with 104 stations and sold our company to CBS in 19, 19, 1997. But the very first station, when we didn't know anything about what we were doing, was at KSO in Des Moines. And it was a station that was owned by the Des Moines Register for a very long time. And then another party, and we bought it from them. Uh, and it was a singularly unsuccessful station. And it was originally put on the air in Shenandoah by the Berry Seed Company. And they put it on the air because they wanted to sell their seed to farmers. That was the original purpose of the station. And the KSO stood for, or at least the lore tells me, we bought it, I guess, 60 years after, 50 years after it was put on the air, was KSO stood for Keep Serving Others. And that's the derivation of that. And that was the derivation of the spirit of the time. These were public licenses. They were government licenses and they were there in the hands of individuals or corporations that ran them. And they had a responsibility to the community. That's the way we felt about it. And I think apparently KSO thought about it in 1922. It's about a hundred years ago that they went on the air with the station. There are very few stations in the United States that have three call letters. Mostly they have four, WHOS three. So Iowa, I think, at WMT has three. There's a fourth one in Davenport. Very unusual. That means those are old stations. They had this whole, the root for all of them came out of this idea. 
uh, of, of keep serving others. And that was our first station. We played every kind of music we could play on it, and nobody listened to it. <laughs> it was a complete failure. And one day I was looking at a ratings book, and I saw that people in Fort Dodge had a station that were playing country music, and people in Des Moines were listening to it. And I said, oh, my goodness, that's 90 miles away. You must really want to listen to country music if you can listen to something 90 miles away. I made a brilliant deduction. Maybe people would like something a little closer to home. And KSO became country, and it became instantly successful. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. In fact, in doing a little research prior to our call today, I read a business story about you and the selling of the properties. And one of the things that you indicated in the story to the reporter is that you wanted to be closer to the FCC. That's true. Do you remember why you said that and what you were thinking at the time? Yes, I do. And it was true. It wasn't just that, but that was certainly one of the major reasons. And it wasn't what you would think. We were trying to expand the business all over the country. It, normally, in the very early days, people went to the State Broadcasters Association meeting, and that's how you met other broadcasters. It wasn't that I was particularly interested in being near the regulatory agency. I was really interested in being near the brokers who need to be there. Now, uh -huh. that, I would add one thing, though, and that is that I was able to see the as the industry changed from a limitation on the number of stations you could have. The reason I got in the business in the first place was they p passed a bill called the All-Channel Bill. This is like talking about the Eiffel Tower or something a lot older than that. You, you had to have FM stations. Nobody was listening to them. Everybody was listening to AM stations. And the way they forced it, the change in that, that the FCC said, you've got to have FM on a car radio. You had to have both FM and AM radio to receive the. So they were trying to promote FM. And that just happened at the time I was looking into a new business. And that I said, there is a terrific opportunity because these new frequencies are all going to be listened to as well as being able to be on the air. Knowing that and being close to the FCC was helpful. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. In this episode, we have a dialogue with Nicholas Johnson, who's an Iowan on the FCC. You may, you may know Nick or Medic. love him. And actually, first I should check with you to see if you agree with my premise before, before I assume this. But it seems to me the two things happened that have made far-right radio flourish, and that was the abolition of the Fairness Doctrine, as well as the telecommunications bill, which allowed the consolidation of media properties. Do you agree with that assessment, or do you have a different point of view? It's certainly part of the truth. And maybe more than half of the truth, I would say. I'll take I can add in a little, another point of view, if you want, if you want me to. Sure. I think it so brought about the development of some far left radio broadcasters. It was an idea of bringing free speech. That was the premise on which it was based. You, need, you needed the fairness doctrine, and it worked. But when you have a thousand channels on television, and you have... I don't know how many radio stations there are now, but if you add satellite and internet, endless number, it, it becomes very difficult to apply that doctrine to the number of voices. And the people who made the change argued that because we had so many more coming, so many more voices, it would all even out. But of course, it hasn't evened out. Conservative radio has really taken over and some very crazy people, in my opinion. And yes, there are lots of different stations, but isn't there a consolidation of ownership that's taken place through telecom? So when Sinclair, for example, owns multiple properties and they decide to send a memo and this is our editorial of the week kind of thing, and pretty much everybody who wants to keep their job has to accommodate those, those points of view, even though there may be lots of different stations, with ownership consolidated, doesn't, isn't that a part of why we're where we are? 
It certainly is a part of the reason. There, there were a few people. There was a company in Lincoln called Stewart Broadcasting that dictated from Lincoln what all their radio stations would do. Uh, this is at the very beginning. This is before the Fairness Doctrine the law. So there were a few people, but now it's prolific. And certainly Sinclair is the gold standard for what you're describing. And uh, so the ownership rule coupled with the Fairness Doctrine repeal has led us down this road to some extent. And we let the genie out of the bottle. Yep. And it, it was a terrible thing to happen. I think it's caused us to be divided in the country. I think it's very unhelpful. In fact, it's threatening, in my opinion, to our to the unity of our democracy as much as anything. But I'm not sure you could put the genie back in the battle, the trauma that has caused our body politic. We've got to find another way to, to address it. You're here. Some of us are doing what we can, but it feels like trying to paddle a kayak in a tornado <laughs> or a Chesapeake squall. <laughs> exactly. I understand that. I, I do. This court case that happened re recently with Fox News is a wonderful outcome for making people accountable for their what they say on the air and not differentiating between editorial and news and then lying about both of them. This is a big deal. It's way bigger, I think, than people even fully understand. Yeah, having said at the corporate chair, so to speak, in a radio or television business, if you get an $800 million suit, it's going to get your attention. This will come to the top of the pot and it's going to make you change the way you do things. Absolutely. And the last suit either. I think it's the first suit. Absolutely. Let's put your corporate business person hat on and speak to what you think. Obviously, you don't know. I don't think you know Rupert Murdoch. You may. I don't. <laughs> but what do you think? What do you think? he's going through? What do you think the board's going through? What's the impact of this kind of settlement? I think it can change everything. Now, there'll always be somebody who is an outlier, but we're talking about corporate policy that, that they have exercised. And this is what you're talking about is you have an amalgamation of a group, then right. you have power into your hands, and then you have no regulation. I think that the courts will say that the cost of this What's fear in the hearts of the people in the board? They look at it, they're running a business. And right. uh, even though they may have a, a political view, they may not all have the same political view, by the way, on that board. You assume they do, but they don't, may not. And they just are going to say that this is not something we can do. And it's going to have to be reined in. And I think it will affect not just Fox. I think it'll affect everybody else. Because the FCC lawyer is going to call up, call and say, that's something you can't do. So mm -hmm. it changed the culture. I think, I think I'm hopeful. I have an idea. I don't know if it's any good. Let's try it. I've taken a greater interest in cable than I have the broadcasting business of late, the commercial broadcasting. If you think about what is on cable and the extreme views that are there. Cable licenses used to be issued by municipalities, not by the FCC. So the city of Des Moines or the city of Cedar Rapids or Mason City, wherever, that council would issue that franchise for that cable system. Now, maybe it's changed. I haven't followed it because I've been out of it a good bit. But if you could get a city council to say, we'll issue this franchise, but you've got to have what effect is the fairness doctrine applied to that franchise. Now, this is the kind of thing that would go, the boardroom would take interest in this, just like they do the court case. That's the thought. I've often wondered how, how one media company, cable company was able to dominate a city the size of Des Moines. I'm not sure that's the case anymore with streaming. I don't know, but it's a really good question. There's something maybe in this arena that we're looking, maybe we should be looking at the federal government, yes, but there may be other ways of looking at this industry and regulating this industry. We have a similar problem with the internet. The internet isn't regulated in the normal historical way the FCC has done it. 
we may have to look at, that's what I'm saying, but we may have to look at how we put this back in place in ways that we haven't thought about yet. And I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that and talking to people about that. Tom, you were involved in the Iowa Republican Party during the days of Robert D. Ray, et cetera, who welcomed immigrants to this state. If you catch up on Iowa news in the Iowa legislature these days, it's such a different picture. They're banning books. They're, they're doing so many things that I don't know what Bob Ray would say today, but it certainly wouldn't have been a part of his platform. The current governor of Iowa will not hold press conferences. There was a court case about availability of information. What do you think happened to the Iowa Republican Party? In your day, there were press conferences literally daily by right. the state. It's, it just feels so different. It feels like, how do we solve problems if we don't talk about them? It doesn't work. I've always felt, that's just a little corny, it comes from Prairie City, Iowa, where my father lived. If I give you a dollar and you give me a dollar, we started out with a dollar, we end up with a dollar. But if I give you an idea and you give me an idea, we end up with two ideas. And I think that's what dialogue does. People are on the bell-shaped curve. There are people on every bell-shaped curve, and they're not every good idea at every place on the curve. If you don't have dialogue, you don't have that creativity. And I think that is a real shortfall. Rika, we had such a great conversation with these three people, and it was so wonderful, we couldn't figure out how to edit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So we debated quite a bit, and decided to make two segments. Exactly. And we think you'll enjoy them both. Um, Ted Koppel, of course, is a legend in his own right, and we wanted to include every word he said, although some of our words to each other are quite <laughs> comical. Um, but we really hope that you've enjoyed this segment because there's a lot of collective knowledge there and perspective. And don't just listen to the podcast. Do something. Tell your friends about the podcast. Also, think of other ways that you can, you can be in support of getting news and information out to your friends and neighbors. Or developing your own. There you go. Thanks for listening. Now, do something. And be sure to tune in to the second part of this podcast with award-winning journalist Ted Koppel. Thanks to Tina Haas-Findley, for creating our intro and outro. And with that, here's Tina. Just look around at where we've been. The more we lose, the less we win. Come on and make me smile again. Oh, I, oh, I.